Amen. All right, well, we're there in Genesis chapter 1. Keep your place there and go with me to the book of 1 first, <clears throat> first Timothy, 1st uh, Timothy chapter number 6. Keep your place there in Genesis chapter 1, uh, but go with me to 1st Timothy. If you find the T books, they're all clustered together. You got 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st Timothy chapter number 6. Today, we are in our second part of the series on creation versus evolution. If you remember last week, we talked about, uh, we, we started off with a famous verse, the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And we're talking about the foolishness of atheism. Uh, and we, just, just real quickly for review, we talked about the fact that if there is no God, and we weren't trying to prove that there is or isn't a God, uh, we're just saying if there is no God, there is also no moral absolutes. If there is no God, there is no conscience. If there is no God, there is no soul. If there is no God, there's no value to life. And if there's no God, there's no purpose to life. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here for that sermon, I'd encourage you to uh, listen to it so you can kind of catch up to where we are. This week, we're going to be talking about uh, science falsely so-called. In fact, if, if you're there in First Timothy chapter 6, I'd like you to look down at verse number 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, the Bible says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Here, the Apostle Paul is warning Timothy that there would be oppositions of so-called science. He says, I'll call it science, but it's science falsely so-called. And today we're going to be talking about the false science of evolution. See, evolution promotes this lie, and the lie that it promotes is that evolution is, uh, is proved by science. And they'll try to teach children in school that, uh, it, you know, when it's creation versus, uh, versus evolution, it's religion versus science. But what I want you to understand, and what I hope you will get from the sermon this morning, is that evolution is not based in science at all. They call it science, but it's a science falsely so-called. And I, I want to start the sermon by just kind of giving you some definitions of the word science. And I want to start with the biblical definition. Uh, the word science is found twice in our Bible. One in the New Testament, 1 Timothy. Another time is found in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. But I, but I want you to notice that the word science the, is also translated in our King James Bible. The same Greek word or the same Hebrew word that is translated science here in 1 Timothy 6 and also in the book of Daniel, that same word is translated knowledge uh, throughout the rest of the Bible. And the biblical definition for the word science is knowledge. The word science means knowledge, not just in the Greek and the Hebrew, but the English word science means knowledge. And uh, the Bible teaches that, but I also want to just give you some textbook definitions of science. So the biblical definition of science is knowledge. Let me give you some textbook definitions of science. I just went on three different uh, dictionaries, uh, and I'm, I want to read you their definition of science. This one's from dictionary.com. It says this, science is defined as the systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. So I want you to notice, according to dictionary.com, science is the knowledge that we gain through observation and experimentation. According to the Merriam-Webster, also online, the term science or scientific method is defined as principles and procedures for the systematic pursuit of knowledge involving the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data through observation and experiments, and the formulation and testing of 
hypothesis. So they define science very similarly to dictionary.com, very similarly to the Word of God. It's knowledge that is gained through observation, experiments, and through testing. Here's the definition of the word science from the Oxford Dictionary. The intellectual and practical activity encompass the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. I want you to notice the key words that keep coming up throughout the textbook definition of science, but also the biblical definition of science. And those, those words are this, knowledge, observation, experimentation, testing. And here's what I want you to understand. Science, by definition, is knowledge that we can gain through observation, through experiments that are made, observations, experiments that are made, testing, which is experiments. Uh, you, you have a hypothesis, you, you have an idea, you think, you, 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 you predict an outcome, and then you test that outcome, and you observe uh, that is either accurate or inaccurate. Now, you say, well, what's science falsely so-called? Science falsely so-called is when someone will promote something as science, but yet it's never been observed. Or as science, and yet it's never been tested. As science, and yet there is no experiment, there's nothing that we can look at, that is science falsely so-called. And I'm going to prove to you today that the so-called science that they push today to try to prove evolution, and if you're uh, a guest this morning, please understand, this is not like our hobby horse and we just talk about evolution every week. We're in the middle of a series called Creation versus Evolution. But I want you to uh, gather from the sermon this morning is that the science that they promote is not science at all because you cannot observe it, you cannot test it, you cannot hold an experiment that'll that'll prove your hypothesis. And I want to give you five examples uh, this morning, five examples of faulty science used to prove evolution. Now, if you are a child today, you need to pay attention, whether you're public school or, or, or home school or private school or whatever, but especially if you're in some sort of a public education system that is teaching you evolution, I want you to pay very close attention this morning. You need to learn this because these are the things that they're going to teach you. If you're a parent this morning or a grandparent, you should pay attention because you're probably going to have to answer some of these questions for your children and explain these things to them. And, and by the way, it's good for our children to know the other side and what they teach and what's wrong with it so that they can learn to defend their faith. So I want to give you five examples of faulty science used to prove evolution today. Uh, Number one, the first one we're going to talk about is the primordial soup theory accounting for the origin of life. See, before we can even get into the evolution of life, we have to talk about the origin of life. Where does life begin? Where does life come from? Now, you're there in 1 Timothy. Go with me to the book of John. John chapter number 1. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And while you go there, I'm going to read for you. I'm going to read several quotes to you this morning from different articles and different places. And I'm going to start off by, while you turn to John chapter 1, I'm going to start off by reading to you from an article from a website called discovery.org. And I want to explain to you the evolutionist theory of the primordial soup. You may, may or may have never heard of that, but let's uh, learn about it so you can kind of understand what we're talking about. In this article, it says, according to conventional thinking among origin of life theorists, life arose via unguided chemical reactions on early earth some three to four billion uh, years ago. Most theorists believe that there were many steps involved in the origin of life, but the very first step would have involved the production of 
a primordial soup, a water-based sea of simple organic molecules out of which life arose. So what they teach is that after the Big Bang and after the earth was formed, however that happened, you know, you have all these rocks and it rained on the rocks for millions of years and that rain eventually created an ocean and that ocean had all sorts of, uh, you know, organic molecules and it was this primordial soup and, you know, different theories have different, depending on what, what you read, you know, some people think lightning struck or whatever and uh, life came out of this primordial soup. Now, before we go any further, let's just look at where the Bible teaches that life came from. John chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, John 1, 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, notice this, was with God, and the Word was God. So that's the Trinity there. We got the Word with God, different from God, and then He's was God at the same time. Notice verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Who was in the beginning with God? The Word. Notice verse 3, all things were made by Him. All things were made by who? The Word. And without Him, the Word was not anything made that was made. So, according to the Bible, who is the Creator? Who is the one that made everything? It is the Word. And if you keep reading there in John chapter 1, you will find that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, the Word became flesh. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God and the Creator. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Notice verse 4, in him, in who? The word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So according to the Bible, where does life come from? It comes from God. It comes from the word. In him was life. He's the one that gave life. We talked about it last week, that it is the word, that it is God who breathed into man and gave him a soul. Go back to the book of Genesis. That's where we read this morning. Genesis chapter 1. And I know you know, you know verse 1. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We believe in a, uh, in a God who created the universe, who created the world, and who created us. Evolutionists have a theory that there was a, an ocean, a huge primordial soup that had all the right ingredients and after millions and millions of years, everything happened to line up and you had life. But there are some scientific problems with this theory. And I want to give you a couple uh, this morning as to why life could not have formed in a primordial ocean uh, millions of years ago. The first reason is this. Amino acids, which is the first step that takes to, that they are saying had to come together and then uh, that became uh, protein and eventually that became uh, a living uh, cell. Amino acids would not be able to come together in the sea. Uh, I'll read for you uh, from uh, the article here. It says, the National Academy of Sciences acknowledges two amino acids do not spontaneously join in water. Rather, the opposite reaction is thermodynamically favored. In other words, water breaks protein chains back down into amino acids or other constituents, making it very difficult to produce proteins in the primordial soup. Materialists lack good explanation for these first simple steps, which are necessary to the origin of life. Chemical evolution is literally dead in the water. 
In 2010, University College of, of London biochemist Nick Lane stated, the primordial soup theory doesn't hold water and is past its expiration date. And by the way, that's an evolutionist who said that. But here's the point. The amino acids would not be able to form in water because the water actually breaks them down and would not allow them to be able to form. And they know this. And you say, well, why do they continue to push this agenda? Because they don't have anything better yet. So they're just going to keep pushing this one until they can come up with something better. Better. So just scientifically speaking, we cannot absorb, we cannot observe, excuse me, amino acids, you know, uh, joining together in water now. We cannot test that. In fact, the tests prove otherwise. The tests prove that it's not possible. Yet, we're supposed to believe that it happened millions and millions of years ago. Can you prove it? No. Can you test it? No. Can we observe it? No. But it's science. It's not science. It's science falsely so-called. Also, it is extremely improbable that amino acids would come together at all. The article goes on. Actually, this is a different article from AmazingFacts.org. It says, what would be involved in the accidental development of a single living cell? The fact is that the most elementary form of life is more complicated than any man-made thing on earth. Scientists themselves assure us that the structure of a single cell is unbelievably intricate. The chance for a proper combination of molecules into amino acids and then into proteins uh, with the properties of life is entirely unrealistic. American Scientist magazine made this admission in January of 1955. From the probability standpoint, the ordering of the present environment into a single amino acid molecule would be utterly improbable in all the time and space available for the origin of terrestrial life. There is a a biologist from the Discovery Institute named Jonathan Wells, and uh, he said this, and I thought this was a pretty good quote. He said, if I were to take a sterile test tube and I put in it a little bit of fluid with just the right amount of salt, just just the right balance of acidity and alkalinity, just the right temperature, the perfect solution for a living cell, and I put in one living cell. The cell is alive. It has everything it needs for life. Now I take a sterile needle and poke that cell, and all its stuff leaks out into the test tube. You have in this nice little test tube all the molecules you need for a living cell, not just the pieces of the molecules, but the molecules themselves, and you cannot make a living cell out of them. You can't put Humpty Dumpty together again. So what makes you think that a few amino acids dissolved in the oceans are going to give you a living cell? It's totally unrealistic. And again, the idea is this. If we can't guide the process in experimentation, if we can't take a living cell and, and we know we have all the molecules there that create a cell and, and, and put it back together, what makes us think that it would just randomly happen in the ocean while the proteins and amino acids are dissolving anyway? Uh, It just doesn't work. So when you hear about the primordial soup and you're told about these vast oceans and the lightning hit and the methane and this and that, just realize that that is not science because science is this, something you can observe, something you can test, something you can perform an experiment on and say, hey, I've got this theory. I have a theory that these amino acids joined together, turned into protein, which eventually became a a living cell, and we can test it, and they've tried to test it. They've tried to, you know, recreate the environment of what they call the, uh, you know, uh, millions-of-year-old earth in, 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 uh, in, in, in science, in labs, and they've never been able to do it. One time 
they, they so-called did it, and then they found that, you know, all of the environment was completely wrong as to what it should have been. And here's all I'm telling you. They'll tell us this stuff, and they'll act like it's science, but it's not science. No one ever saw it in nature, and they can't duplicate it in the lab. It cannot be absorbed. It cannot be tested. Therefore, it is not science. So the primordial soup theory accounting for the origin of life is not science. I'll tell you what it is. It's wishful thinking. I'll tell you what it is. It's a belief system. You can say, I believe that there was an ocean and these amino acids came together and created protein and this and that. You, you can believe that. You can say that's my uh, belief system. That's what I hope happened. That's what I wish happened because I don't want there to be an actual God. But you can't call it science because no one's observed it and you cannot test it. You cannot predict it. It's not something that you can experiment with. So the first example this morning is the primordial soup theory accounting for the origin of life. And what does the Bible say? Where does life come from? It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from God. In Him was life. He's the one that gave us life. Number two, for those of you that are taking notes, what's another example of faulty science that is used to try to prove evolution today? And the second point I want to make this morning is this. The use of microevolution to prove macroevolution. The use of microevolution to prove macroevolution. Now let me kind of explain these terms. Because there's all sorts of different types of evolution that you need to understand. And the two that I want to talk about right now is macroevolution versus microevolution. Micro is referring to something small, like a micro chip, right? Macro is in regards to something big. Let me give you a definition for macroevolution. Macroevolution is defined as major evolutionary transition from one type of organism to another occurring at the level of the species or higher taxa. So you say, what is that referring to macroevolution? Macroevolution is basically what we think of when we talk about evolution about one animal turning into another animal, one simple uh, animal turning into a, com- a more complex. It's, it's ma- major leaps. It's a big, uh, and that's what, when we think of evolution, we talk about evolution and the evils of evolution, that's what you are uh, referring to. Microevolution, however, is possible. And I'm not even sure that we should call it, I mean, that's a term they give it in science. I don't even think we should call it microevolution because that's very misleading. You know, simply just variances within kinds. But microevolution is possible and is observed in nature today. Let me read to you from, uh, let's see, from this article, discovercreation.org. Uh, microevolution is the occurrence of small inherited changes in a population. The classic example is Darwin's finches. Now, when Darwin was in the Galapagos Islands, he observed these finches. He loved birds, and he observed these finches and the fact that they had different types of beak, depending on where they lived and the type of food they had. They had these different types of beaks, and because he observed that some of those finches had adapted to their environment or had uh, changed, you know, uh, had varied a little bit in order to be able to eat or whatever it was, wherever it happened to be on that island or at the time that it lived, 
he determined that that was evolution. Now, he uses that to prove macroevolution, but he's using an example of microevolution. Because here's the thing, whether the bird had a long beak or a short beak, whether, it, 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 whether the beak was larger or smaller, the thing is, it was still a bird. It hadn't changed into another animal. It was a, a, a small variance within the actual uh, kind of animal. Now, let me keep reading. The classic example is Darwin's finches, which show variations in size and shape over successive generations depending on the nature of their food supply. Many other similar examples could be readily cited, like the breeding of dogs or types of wheat. So look, we can observe microevolution today. You can take two generic dogs and breed them and breed them and mess with the breeding and mess with breeding, and you can get big dogs and little dogs and all sorts of different types of dogs, but it's always going to be a dog. And the Bible teaches this. You're there in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse number 11. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11. And here's the major, you know, belief system where, where, where biblical-based Christianity goes away from evolution. And it is this, that no animal can produce another type or another kind of animal. The Bible teaches this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Not just animals, but everything. Genesis 1, 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed, notice these terms, after his kind. And the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself, notice these three words, after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Skip down to verse 24, Genesis 1:24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind cattle and creeping things and the beasts of the earth after his kind and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth notice after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and God saw that it was good and by the way things bringing forth after their own kind is the only type of reproduction that has ever been observed by anybody I mean, and look, not only has it, has it not happened in the past, we've never seen it. I mean, why are we not today seeing animals produce different types of animals? Because the Bible says that animals will only produce after their kind. And by the way, if they can produce, if they can reproduce, then they're the same kind. You know, a dog, a, a dog can produce and reproduce with different types of dogs, different types of canines. But it's not going to reproduce with a turtle or with a pigeon. And they're not the same kind. That's what the Bible teaches. That makes microevolution possible, but makes macroevolution impossible. See, microevolution is possible and observed in nature today. But, um, but here's what you need to understand. Microevolution, small amounts of variances within a kind, can never lead to macroevolution. You can never change an animal so much and so much that eventually becomes a different animal. And see, when Darwin wrote The Origin of, of, of Species book, their understanding at that time about genes and, and, and you know, how, how DNA was inherited and all that was not understood. They did not understand those concepts at that time, so he, he, was, he just didn't have the science needed 
to, to be able to really look at his theory in a scientific way. Today we have the science, but it's ignored because they want to push an agenda and they want to push uh, theory. Let me read for you from this article. Genes can impart great variety by combining in different ways, but genetic change cannot be pushed beyond a certain point. From generic dogs, we can breed big dogs or little dogs, but we can't turn a dog into an alligator. The important thing to remember about microevolution is that it always involves recombination re, uh, or loss of existing genes. It never creates totally new genes from scratch. Microevolution makes variations within already existing kinds of creatures, not wholly new kinds. See, if you're going to turn an animal into a different animal, you'd have it, it, which you can't do. But in theory, if you're going to do it, you'd have to add new genes into that gene pool. But what microevolution does, it just re, it just shuffles up the genes that are already there. See, the Chihuahua is a dog. It has all the genes that a dog needs. It's just using a lot less of them. Because it's like this big, you know? And obviously, you know, bigger dogs are going to have a, a much bigger gene pool to, 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 to come out of, but it's still a dog. It will never just change the gene. So microevolution is true. And here's what they'll do in school. They'll teach children about microevolution. They'll give them examples about microevolution, but then they'll just, you know, have them believe that macroevolution is somehow connected to that, and it's not. And we should probably stop calling it. I mean, at least as Christians, we should probably stop calling it microevolution, just call it, you know, variances within kinds. We get that. Obviously, we have all the different types of dogs and cats and birds, and, you know, they all probably, all dogs, I'm sure, descended from, the, from you know, the same generic dog that came off Noah's Ark, or all cats uh, descended from the cats that came off Noah's Ark. So we're not against microevolution, but it is, and by the way, microevolution is science. It can be observed. It can be tested. But microevolution will not and cannot ever lead to macroevolution, which is this belief system that, you know, uh, a cell turned into a fish, and the fish turned into a reptile, and the reptile turned into a bird, and then, you know, whatever. And then it became an ape, and then a human, whatever it is. So here's what you need to understand. The use of microevolution to prove macroevolution is not science. Now, I will say this. It's deceitful. It's extremely deceitful to teach children about microevolution, to give them evidence about microevolution, and then throw in macroevolution with it, that's deceitful. It's lying, but it's not science. So the, science, the, 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 the evolution of today, you know, the primordial soup, is that science? No, it's wishful thinking, but it's not science. The microevolution used to prove macroevolution today, uh, it, yeah, it's deceitful, but it's not science. Let me give you a third one. The third one is this. The hope, the hope that mutations might explain evolution. The hope that mutations might explain evolution. Let me give you the hypothesis of mutations in regards to evolution that they give. This is from a uh, website, Amazing Facts. The article says this, One of the most necessary parts of evolution, which is supposed to provide the power for changing the amoeba into a man, is mutation. 
This refers to abnormal changes in the organisms that are assumed to be caused by chemical changes in the genes themselves. The genes are the hereditary factor within the chromosomes of each species. The assumption is that these genes which provide the inherited characteristics we get from our ancestors occasionally becomes affected by unusual pairing, chemical damage, or other influences, causing them to produce an unusual change in one of the offspring. This is referred to as a mutation. Through gradual changes wrought in the various species through mutation, it is assumed by the evolutionists that the amoeba turned into an invertebrate, which became an amphibian, then a reptile, a quadruped, an ape form, and finally a man. So what they are teaching is that if you get enough mutations going, it can turn, you know, one kind of being into a different kind of being. Now, here's the thing. Are mutations real? They are. Can we observe them in nature? We can. In fact, the Bible talks about mutations. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read one for you, all right? First Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6, the Bible talks about mutations. It says this, And yet again, there was war at Gath, where was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty. Now, is that normal? To have twenty-four fingers and twenty-four toes, six on each hand, the Bible says, the Bible says, and six on each foot, and he also was the son of the giant. So here you've got a giant who's got six fingers in each hand and six fingers in each foot, and that's a mutation. That's not normal. But here's the thing, and, and, and today, there's people born with six fingers today, you know, usually they cut them off and just, you know, have surgery or whatever. Those types of things do happen. And by the way, we've been conditioned by the media to, to believe these things. When I was a kid, there was a famous comic book and cartoon called X-Men. I think there's like movies that they make now or whatever. And, and what, what, was that, what was that comic book teaching? That humans were turning into these mutants. But they were never these freaks, right? They always had these cool superpowers. What were they becoming? Gods. It's teaching evolution. It's saying that mutations will eventually turn a person into something greater than it itself. Now, let me give you some reasons why mutations are an unlikely vehicle for evolution, why mutations would not work for evolution. So I'll keep reading to you from this article. It says, keep this clearly in mind. Evolutionists say that mutation is absolutely essential to provide the inexorable upgrading of species that change the simpler forms into complex forms. But... The scientific fact is that mutations could never accomplish what evolution demands of it for several reasons. Number one, all scientists agree mutations are very rare. Secondly, when they do occur, they are almost certain to be harmful or deadly to the organism. In other words, the vast majority of such mutations lead towards extinction instead of evolution. They make the organism worse instead of better. Darwin himself conceded that most mutants are recessive and degenerative. Therefore, they would, not actually, they would actually be eliminated by natural selection rather than affect any significant improvement in the organism. Here's the thing. Mutations generally hurt. They destroy genes or there are a lack of genes. They're not a superiority to genes. And the funny thing is that evolutionists themselves give us an example of mutation and the fact that it can happen, but it does not promote their theory. Uh, I'll keep reading for you. This is from a different, uh, a different article uh, from the Creation Studies uh, website. It says this, Researchers 
have by means of genetic breeding changed a two-wing fruit fly into a four-wing fruit fly. The four-wing fruit fly consistently reproduces four-winged fruit flies. But although a new species has been produced, it is not a new kind. The mutant fruit fly is still a fruit fly. As a matter of fact, the four-winged fruit fly is a weakened form. The second set of wings do not help the fruit fly. They actually get in the way. Its ability to take flight is dangerously hindered. The bottom line is that mutations always weaken an organism and never change it into something else. The fruit fly remains a fruit fly. So this idea that they try to teach that mutations can somehow explain evolution or mutations can be the vehicle by which evolution uh, is, it comes from is not scientific. And quite honestly, it's just grasping at straws. It's not science. You can't observe it. We, we, you can't observe something turning into you know, a, a mutant and say this is a better version. It may be, it's usually a worse version. It may be a different version, but it's not a better version. And, and there's no science to prove that. But today they'll teach that to children. And of course, you know, what are all these X-Men watching kids thinking? Cool. I want to be a mutant. And they're teaching them you are a mutant. You know, and, and it's not science at all. So we've seen the primordial soup theory accounting for the origin of life. It's wishful thinking, but it's not science. We've seen the use of microevolution to try to prove macroevolution. It's deceitful, but it's not science. We've seen the hope, the hope that mutations might be the vehicle by which evolution can work. And that is just grasping at straws, but it's not science. Let me give you the fourth one. And to me, this is probably the most interesting one. And this is the use of fossil records as evidence for evolution. The use of fossil records as evidence for evolution. Now, I would say some of these things I've told you, they're wishful thinking, they're deceitful, they're grasping at straws. I would say that this one is arrogant and ironic. That they would even use the fossil record to try to prove evolution. And I think it's silly. I think if they were smart, they'd ignore fossil record, the fossil record altogether. And let me explain to you why. There is a problem for the evolutionists called the Cambrian explosion. I'll read for you from uh, discovery.org here. One biology textbook explains, major groups of animals appear abruptly in the fossil record, fully formed and with no fossils yet discovered, that form a transition from their parent group. They go on. Probably the most famous instance of abrupt appearance is the Cambrian explosion, where nearly all the major living animal phyla appear in the Cambrian period. An invertebrate biology textbook explains, most of the animal groups that are represented in the fossil record first appear fully formed and identifiable as their phylum in the Cambrian some 550 million years ago. And of course, that's their belief system, not mine. The Cambrian layer, they, could, they go on, is full of all the major kinds of animals found today except the vertebrae. In other words, there is nothing primitive about the structure of these most ancient fossils known to man. Essentially, they compare with the complexity of current living, living creatures. But the big question is, where are their ancestors? Where are all the evolving creatures that should have led up to these highly developed fossils? According to the theory of evolution, the pre-Cambrian strata should be filled with more primitive forms of these Cambrian fossils in the process of evolving 
upward. Now, let me ask a question. Who's ever heard of this term, the missing link? Who's ever heard of that? The missing link, right? Uh, we've all heard of that. I mean, I think we've all heard, you, you probably should have heard of, you know, they're, they're searching for the missing link. And here's what, they, here's what they want you to believe, all right? They want you to believe that they have all, these fossils, I mean, they, they can line them up. And I mean, they can start from that, you know, that first fish that crawled out of the water or whatever, and they can line these, these fossils up and they'll put pictures, you know, you've seen those pictures where it starts like a chimp and it ends up, you know, as a human being or whatever. And they'll, they'll have you to believe and they'll, you know, kind of put this in the minds of children that they've got all these fossils. And the fact that they even use the term, the missing link, makes you think they've got, if you got it all lined up, I mean, we can see it real clearly where it started here and it became more and more and more complex till it became a human, but there's one link. There's just one that's missing. And if we could just find the bones of that Bigfoot, right? If we just find that one missing link and put it in there, the link will be complete. See, and you say, well, why would they admit to a missing link? Here's why they admit to a missing link. Because there's, it's, it's, the problem is not a missing link. The problem is the entire chain is missing. It's not that they're missing a link, they're missing the whole thing. Now, if they can have you think they've got it all except the link, it seems pretty scientific. What they don't admit is that they don't have any of it. There's no missing link. There's a missing chain. There's no proof in the fossil record that this happened. And here's the thing. Their big problem is this Cambrian explosion because you've got this strata that supposedly gives you the history of Earth. And we'll talk about that in a different sermon. But, you know, here's, here's the idea. If evolution is true, if evolution is true, then we should be able to look back at these fossils and find find hundreds of thousands, I mean, of evidence of these animals turning in one kind turning into another kind. See, the, the fact that they've got maybe two or three or four missing links that they argue this is part of the missing link, I ought to tell you how ridiculous this is because there should be no argument. If evolution is true, there should be an overwhelming amount of just half human, half ape bones found. We shouldn't be arguing over two or three of them. Is it really? Is it not? I mean, there should just be an overwhelming amount of half fish, half reptile, half reptile, half, uh, uh, you know, bird. There should be an overwhelming amount of this in the fossil record. But here's the thing. There is none. In fact, when you go further than the pre, uh, pre, uh, when you're into the pre-Cambrian strata, it's virtually Fossilless. There's no fossils. I mean, virtually nothing found in that strata. But then when you get to the Cambrian strata, all of a sudden, all the animals appear in their basically complex form the way they are now. Of course, we know that animals, uh, there is microevolution and they vary uh, within time, but they all appear. So here's the thing. What, what does the Cambrian explosion hint towards? Here's what it hints towards. It hints towards the fact the Cambrian explosion points to one fact. A sudden creative act brought all the major creatures into existence at the same time. I mean, when you've got this, when you've got strata after strata and there's virtually nothing on it, and then all of a sudden you get to this date and all these animals appear. The Cambrian explosion. You know what that's hinting towards? It's hinting to the fact that all of these animals appeared all at the same time. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 20. I'll show you the Cambrian explosion in Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20. Notice what the Bible says. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that hath life, and fowls that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, 
which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Look down at verse number 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures after his kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Notice verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and every creep, everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. See, the Bible teaches that that the entire world was created in a period of six days. That all animals came into existence relatively at the same time. So the fact that you see them all explode into the history of strata at the same time makes perfect sense with the creation theory. Makes no sense with the evolutionist theory. And the fact that they would use fossils to try to, you know, show these fossils to these children and say, see, the fossil record proves evolution is not only, you know, arrogant, it's ironic. I mean, you'd think they'd just not want to talk about the fossil record at all. you think they'd want to just ignore it and make up some lie that, you know, well, you know, after a billion years or whatever, fossils just disintegrate and we no longer, that's why we don't have them. you think they'd make up, but here's the thing, they just think we're so stupid, and here's the problem, most Americans are so caught up with watching their little X-Men and watching their stupid Super Bowl or whatever, and don't want to read or learn about these things. They, they just think, people are stupid. Just tell them anything. Just show them this, you know, fake Lucy. Or show them this fake, you know, fossils. Or just tell them, tell, tell them we got almost all of them. We're just missing one link. You're not missing one link. You're missing the whole chain. You're missing all of it. It's not there. And, and, and here's what you need to understand, too. And uh, Kent Hovind said this in, in his seminar. Not that it was a good good quote. Why would you think, see, the, a fossil can't prove anything. You can't look at a fossil and prove that that thing ever had a child or ever produced anything. And here's a quote I like from Kent Hovind. Why would you think that a bone you found in the dirt could do something that animals today cannot do? Produce something other than their own kind. Here's the thing, you can't look at a fossil and say, this fossil, this fossil, you see this bird right here? This bird gave birth, or this dinosaur gave birth to a bird. Bones don't show you that that Dinosaur had any children, much less that it gave birth to anything else. But you can't, but we don't see animals. We don't see, we, you know what we, the only thing we observe today in nature is animals bringing forth after their own kind. That's science. We can observe it. We can test it. We can look at it. We can try to make animals, you know, reproduce something else, and it just doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work. But somehow, magically, it did happen with this fossil record. You know, this fossil proves, and it's like, you, you don't know that that fossil had any children, that that fossil ever produced anything, much less anything different than itself. It's not science, because what is science? Science is something we can observe. Something is, science is something we can predict. Science is something that we can experiment with. Science is something that we can test and say, here's our theory, we tested it, it's proven, and using the fossil record as evidence for evolution is extremely arrogant and ironic because you're missing a link and you're missing a lot of links, you're just missing the whole entire chain altogether. Number five, let me give you the last one. So what what is the point of the sermon? The point of the sermon is just to try to show you that the theory of evolution is not science. And the science that they're quote-unquote giving you to prove evolution is not science at all. Primordial soup is not science. It's wishful thinking, but it's not science. The microevolution, to prove macroevolution, microevolution is science, but to use that to prove macroevolution is deceitful. It's not science. 
The hope that mutations might be the vehicle by which evolution can come is just grasping at straws. It's not science. The fossil record is arrogant to use that. Arrogant and ironic, but it's not science. Number five. Let me give you the last one. The idea that natural selection, who's ever heard that term before? Natural selection. The idea that natural selection can somehow produce evolution is not science. See, I'll teach children. How, how does evolution work? How, how can evolution exist? Well, it exists because of natural selection. It exists because of the law of the survival of the fittest. Natural selection may explain, and I got the points, for the, the, the quotes from this uh, point come from the uh, Kent Hovind seminar. Uh, natural, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I didn't get specific quotes from him, but natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest, but it does not explain the arrival of the fittest. I thought that was a good quote. Natural selection may, now I use the word may, may explain the survival of the fittest, but it does not explain the arrival of the fittest. Natural selection does not give us an explanation for the origin of life. Natural selection only gives us a theory for how species survive, but it does not tell us how they got here. All right? So natural selection may explain the survival of the fittest, but it does not explain the arrival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest, however, may not be accurate. The survival of the fittest may not be accurate. And in, again, in Kent Hovind's seminar, he gives this illustration, which I thought was a good illustration. If a whale was to just cross through a school of fish and eat 80% of them, that, the ones that survived is not really a survival of the fittest, it's a survival of the luckiest. It's just the ones that didn't get eaten. You know, you can say like, well, this fox was more fit, but if that fox broke its leg and got eaten up by another animal... Was it more fit? It may have been, but it just didn't have any good luck. So survival of fittest may not even be that, you know, that accurate to begin with. It may just be the survival of the luckiest. Just may be the survival of the fortunate. But even, but let's say that survival of fittest is true. Let's say that the the law of natural selection was an actual law of nature. Let's say that that was true. The survival of the fittest does not account... And let me read for you uh, here from the article. What article was this? I think this was Amazing Facts or something. It says this, For an organism to evolve upward, from simple to complex, there must be an increase of genetic information. For an organism to go from a single-celled organism to something more complex, from an animal that's not as complex, although even the most single-celled organism is more, way more complex than anything we've had, that man has ever created, including all our cities and technology. You know, so calling them you know, things that are not complex is not really accurate. They're extremely complex. But in order to go from something that's less complex to something that's more complex, you have to add to the gene pool. Remember? That's why microevolution will never lead to macroevolution because you have to be able to add to that gene pool. Well, here's the thing about uh, natural selection, survival of the fittest. Because you ask most people, you know, because these things go hand in hand, and you say, well, how does evolution work? Survival of the fittest. How does evolution work? Natural selection. Here's the problem with that thought, is that natural selection will never add genes to a gene pool. 
It will never add the genes needed to turn an animal into a different animal. If natural selection is true, if there is a survival of fittest, it is nature's quality control. Do you understand that? It may allow for the worst, the weakest, the sickliest of a species to die down, but it will never allow a certain species to turn into, or a certain kind of animal to turn into a different kind of animal. It may give you the strongest, most fit of that kind, but it will never turn that kind into a different kind. Does that make sense? Here's the example uh, from, the, from the seminar. If you were to be put in charge of uh, quality control for an auto manufacturer, you know, you, your job is to sit there at the assembly line and make sure that you know, everything that's inaccurate, inappropriate, that's not, that doesn't work, everything that's wrong, you remove it. You're going to make this assembly line the fittest assembly line ever. There'll be no mistakes. Nothing will ever happen. And you do the best job you can at it. You remove lazy people. You remove, you know, uh, uh, processes that are complicated. You remove all the problems with that assembly line. You make that assembly line the fittest assembly line in the United States of America. How long will it take before that assembly line stops producing vehicles and produces an airplane? It'll never happen. It might produce vehicles more efficiently. You might produce vehicles more effectively, but you'll never just get so fit that you'll start accidentally producing jet airplanes. Because in order to do that, you'd have to add parts, processes to that assembly line. Natural selection may give us the fittest cheetah, may give us the strongest lion, may give us the best of whatever you know, kind or species we have, but it's never going to turn that animal into a different animal. If natural selection, if, if, if survival of the fittest is true, it'll, it'll never account for evolution. So the fact that today they are teaching evolution works because of natural selection, Evolution works because of the survival of the fittest. Because of the fact that the most fit survived, that's why we're able to evolve. That is a lie. It's not true. It could never happen. Because you have to be able to add genes, genetic information, to that being in order for it to turn into something else. So, again, what's the point of the sermon this morning? Say, Pastor Jimenez, I thought you know you were going to try to prove God from the Bible. You must have not been here last week. Because the point of this series is not to try to prove to you God scientifically. The Bible says that the only way to please God is to come to Him in faith. The only way to to be saved, by the way, is to come to Him in faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We'll never be able to scientifically prove to you there is a God. That's not the point of this series. The point of this series is to show you that the, number one, that the science, that the science that they are supposedly, you know, have got all the science to verify evolution is not science at all. Because if you notice these five, and I've, I read a lot, I read a lot of articles, and I, I tried to find the five major things that they push, and I'm sure there's others. Um, and, and by the way, you know, a lot of times people will look at the same evidence and just look at it differently because of their worldview. You know, so you'll look at evidence that can be observed in nature and you'll come up with a different, you know, conclusion because of the fact that you believe you came from, you know, an ape-like being millions of years ago as opposed to you believe that uh, the world was created in six little days. So, but here's the point that I'm trying to tell you. 
the science that they're trying to use is not science because we can't observe it, because we cannot test it, because we cannot predict it, because we, we can't, you know, uh, issue an experiment that says, look, look, right here. I created life in this test tube right here. There was nothing. There was salt water and amino acids and I, sh I, I threw a battery in there and it sparked and look, a single-celled organism. No one's ever done that. And like the quote read, we can't even take a single-celled organism apart, put it in the most perfect environment and put it back together. Just by our own intelligence and guiding it, we can't even put it back together. So you, look, you, it, 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 you say, well, what is it? It's religion. They're teaching you something that cannot be proven, and they're asking us to accept it by faith, but they're lying. They're lying because they'll say, oh, no, it's science. It's not science at all. Primordial soup is not science. Wishful thinking, but not science. Microevolution is science, but to use it to prove macroevolution is lying. It's not science. The hope that mutations might explain, might be the vehicle, that evolution used to bring us to the place we are is not science at all. We've never seen mutations produce anything. You, you say they, they, they take a fruit fly and they zap it and they radioactive and they do all these terrible things to it. They make all sorts of different types of fruit flies, but they never made a hummingbird. They never made anything else. It's still just a fruit fly. So it's grasping at straws. The fossil record, is I think, is arrogant, ironic that they even go there. Because they're not just missing links, they're missing the whole thing. And then, of course, the idea of natural selection. When people tell you, well, how, does it, how, how can evolution happen? Well, the survival of the fittest. No, the survival of the fittest can make us the most fit. The survival of the fittest can make us the most effective, efficient beings on earth, whatever we are. But it will never add genes to the gene pool needed to be able to produce a different animal, a different kind of animal, because that's you say, well, how do you know that? Because that's what the Bible says. And you know what's interesting? Is that everything the Bible says, everything the Bible says, I'm not telling you it can be proven, but it can be predicted, tested, and observed in nature. For example, creationists can say, hey, you know what? I bet you, I bet you that not all beings on earth came back from a common ancestor because we did not. But I bet you that all the dogs, all the different types of dogs on planet Earth have a common ancestor. And you know that genetics has proven that all the dogs, the breeds of dogs that we have today, can all be traced back to a common ancestor, which was a dog. You say, well, how can you make that prediction based on the Bible? Well, because of the flood. Because of the fact that we know that there was a flood and that all the creatures died off except for the ones that were on the ark. And we can make a prediction and say, I bet you all of these, all of these dogs came from two common ancestors, you know, a common ancestor of a dog that was on that ark. We can make that prediction. We can make the prediction that because God created Adam and Eve and because all humans are descendants of Adam and Eve, that all humans have a common ancestor, which would be Adam and Eve. And you know that science has proven that. Genetics have proven that. That there is no other type of race or human. All races, red and yellow, black and white, they all come back to Adam and Eve. Science has proven that. We can, we, can, we can look at something from Scripture, predict it. You know what, what a creation scientist would be able to predict? They would predict, hey, I bet you, I bet you that the fossil record would show that all animals came into existence at the same time. Oh, wow, it does. That's science. You can have a hypothesis. 
You can test it. You can observe it. You can experiment with it and show it to be true. So don't be lied to. Don't let them lie to you. Say, what's evolution? It's a religion. You have to accept it by faith. And if you want to accept it, that's fine. But can you be honest? Can you be honest and not call it science? They mock us. Well, you want us to accept God by faith. I'd rather accept God by faith than a primordial soup by faith. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us and be with us as we study this subject. And I know for some it may be interesting and for others it may be extremely boring, but Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to be able to understand, not to make it our hobby horse and our one big issue, but just to understand. When people try to act like our faith is not compatible with science, and that science proves evolution, help us to just realize and be assured of the fact that whenever science finally catches up to the Bible, the Bible is always right. And Lord, help us to have an understanding of what true science says. And help us to realize that these lies of evolution are nothing but science falsely so-called. We love you, Lord. In your precious name, I pray. Amen.